0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 16th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. It's hot out there. Not just global climate trends, but as well. The fear admits the debate about renewable energy sources. Taking the heat down a few notches are today's guests, Mark Nelson, engineer and nuclear energy expert, and A.J. Shaka, UCI chemistry professor and director of the UCI Nuclear Reactor Facility. We'll go local and then we'll zoom out to some international cases with their consideration of the viability of nuclear power in the energy mix with the goal of reducing greenhouse gases overall. My guests with brighter minds available to raise with us literacy about energy options With the focus being on nuclear power, are covering local to global takes. I'll tee up all my wide-eyed questions and then get the heck out of their way. I'll introduce them both now. Mark Nelson is founder and managing director of Radiant Energy Group, which offers expertise on nuclear engineering, decommissioning and repowering, and expert opinion services. Prior to founding Radiant Energy Group in 2019, Mark was a senior analyst at Environmental Progress, a fellow at the Breakthrough Institute, and while an undergraduate, he worked some stints at Los Alamos National Laboratory and Giovanni Manufacturing. He completed his Bachelor of Science in Aeromechanical Engineering and studied Russian at Oklahoma State University and his Master's of Philosophy and Nuclear Energy at the University of Cambridge. Returning to the show is UCI chemistry professor and director of the UCI nuclear reactor facility, A.J. Shaka. A.J.'s expertise and interests cover physical and biophysical chemistry, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, chemistry of aging, nuclear power, and radiochemistry. His accolades range from Rhodes Scholar to 2010 Emmy Award winner for best instructional series, a chemistry distance learning program. I've learned a great deal from talking over the fence with and previously interviewing AJ, and as well from listening in Twitter spaces when Mark's speaking. So I thought I'd bring both of them, bring everybody else along with us to turning down the fear factor about nuclear power and raise our literacy about nuclear energy options. Even people I consider reasonably well-informed are stuck. Stuck so much on dogma that one individual toxically ranted that I had no business even doing this interview today. Well, I'm doing it. Mark comes to us today from Chicago, and AJ, just up the street from me in Irvine, welcome to Ask a Leader, Mark Nelson, and welcome back, AJ Shaka.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Claudia.
0: That was A.J. First and Mark Nelson, and we'll, we'll label them as they speak from time to time. So we are where we are at this moment amidst the clearly successful disinformation campaign stoking fears of nuclear power, both in domestic applications and around the invasion of Ukraine's facilities by the Russian military. So I'm, I'm glad these two cool heads here are they're here to essentially provide this form for expansive thinking about nuclear power as an antidote to reflexive opposition to this as a renewable energy source, with the goal being climate change mitigation. So let's talk about then in a general way, nuclear power as a portion of a varied energy portfolio to replace coal, oil and gas reliably and more cheaply to the grid, or as one other person in my brain trust puts it, to buy time. So there's the general question that I'd like to have you take up.
2: I'll start, Claudia, if that's okay.
0: This is Mark.
2: Yeah, Claudia, the fun thing about nuclear is it doesn't really need a mix. You can add a mix if you want, but I'm mean, here in Chicago where we get about 80% of our electricity from nuclear reactors, and it would be a higher percentage than that But we senselessly tore down a very young nuclear plant for no particular reason about 20 years ago, just up the coast of Lake Michigan from the city. If we had not torn that down, we'd be about 90, 95 percent nuclear electricity this day. So when people say a mix, it's often nuclear helping fill in for the weakness of other sources. But you don't actually have to have that. You could just have nuclear with a
1: bit of storage. I I quite agree with that. And the other thing that's very important is that we are on a timeline. We can buy some time. But the question is, how quickly can you build a massive amount of quote, renewable energy? It requires a lot of material, tons and tons and tons of concrete and steel and other things. And there's a question as to whether you could actually safeguard your power plants from climate change itself. There are pictures of solar panels that were smashed and blown and all, you know heaved during Irma and Maria, the hurricanes. And if you lose your power plant on top of having your house damaged, it's going to take quite a lot longer to recover. So having big delocalized power plants that are vulnerable to storms, wind, and various things, hail, for example, is something to keep in mind because you can find examples where panels have been busted, destroyed. There is the question as to what happens to a wind turbine in a Force 5 hurricane. The, the forces on the rotors are incredible. A nuclear plant, the nuclear plant at Turkey Point in Florida, kept operating throughout the hurricanes, shrugged it off because the nuclear plant's not huge. And so you can guard it with six feet of concrete if you want to, and you still haven't used that much material. And yet it supplies reliable power in times of need. And of course, at night and other times when people may be wanting to charge up their electric cars in the future. So I do... Oh, yeah.
2: Sorry, I just might step in and say, I do see in some countries with good renewable energy sources or countries that are not, not struggling for money, so extremely rich countries, they can put out money to do, say, temporary wind and solar installations to save some amount of fuel in their gas and coal, sometimes even oil burning plants, until they can get a strong nuclear baseload set up. I'm not going to hide it. It does take a number of years to get a nuclear plant up and running. doesn't have to take forever. What we've seen is entire countries can get a major portion of their energy from nuclear, from a standing start in, depending on how you want to measure it, say 14 years to start a program, 11 years from choosing the reactor type, eight or nine years from starting to build the first of a group of three or four massive reactors. We've already seen that. We're going to see a lot more oil rich countries pay For really good nuclear construction teams to build nuclear quite rapidly. We're going to see that more and more. But in the meantime, they do build a little bit of wind and solar to save some of the fuel in the power plants that are still necessary to keep. So you've got to keep your grid up at all moments, not just before or after the hurricane, but also during. And the way you do that is you have constant power plants, firm power plants that are ready to run. And if that means having, say, like what New England does, New England shut down a number of nuclear reactors, and instead what they do is they just burn a lot more oil during times when they don't have any of the renewables, the small amount of renewables they've been able to build in that dense and rich area of the world. They just have to use a lot more fossil fuels to replace the nuclear they've lost, in addition to importing more power from other regions, which sets up a little bit of a systematic risk that they don't necessarily have all the power they need at home. So I think I would see wind and solar as part of a thing that buys us a bit of time to get nuclear installed in the really rich countries. The reason why I say rich countries is because the apparent cheapness of wind and solar is mitigated by the fact that you have to keep up the other power plants also. And at the point that you have to start building Storage storage is extremely expensive and it is not a source of energy in fact storage the more storage you have the more energy you pass in and out of storage the more you
1: lose a portion of the power that you've generated so I fully agree with that and more generally the energy that it takes to manufacture your energy producing hardware is not properly taken into account. People act as if these solar panels they put on their roofs drop out from the sky magically. They do not. They are manufactured by burning a ton of coal somewhere else where you can't see it. And in addition, there are many other very potent greenhouse gases Much more potent than CO two that get emitted in the production of these panels, and so if you want to be worrying about being broiled to death by very hot summers because of the greenhouse gases, you don't want to be doing anything like that necessarily, because you could. It it, it's the same thing with uh, natural gas. Methane is eighty times worse over a ten year period than CO2. So that means if you have a few percent methane leak, you're better off with coal because in addition to the CO2, you've cut that by 50%, but gas leaks pump up your bike tires and let me know in a month if they're still pumped up, all gas leaks. And so this methane is going up as well as CO2. It's not just CO2, it's methane. And if you look at the bottom line, here's what I would say anyway. When I got concerned back in 2011 about what was going on when environmental scientists, who we have a big presence of them at UCI, were saying the CO2 is going too high and it's going to be a real problem. We're going to see very, very drastic effects if we keep on as we've been doing. The problem is The emissions last year in the United States were higher than ever. So if you think renewable energy is making any inroads, then as Ray Charles said so famously, I've got news for you. We need something different.
2: I might mention, AJ, that uh, you raised a number of very interesting and uh, quite technical fields that spawn their own PhD programs and professors and even departments. So life cycle analysis looks at each stage in the production, use, and decommissioning of an object or an energy producing device or even a system. And then another one was energy return on energy invested, saying for each bit of gruel that you feed to a medieval peasant, how much wheat and oats for more gruel are they going to pull out of the ground? So that's an interesting question. And what we can sort of see is that very, very rough, difficult medieval life with relatively low life expectancy from mainly from high childhood mortality was a world of, say, four to one. You got four units of energy for the one unit of energy put into farming and with other units of energy coming from the sun. And and that's an extremely difficult, brutal existence down to four to one or so. Now, solar did drop in cost remarkably over the last decade. But as Dr. Shaka pointed out, that's because of an immense amount of concentrating of the production into a few giant facilities, many of them in the far west of China, that have coal. Fired power plants, very cheap, hard-running coal power plants built locally for this most energy-intensive step in solar development. Now, do you have to make your solar panels in China? No, but you're not going to enjoy a lot of the cost advantages that allowed people to see solar as a cheap way to save fuels on a reliable electricity grid. So there's a difficulty with having your cake and eating it too. You can make the life-cycle carbon emission numbers of solar go down in ways that significantly raise the price of solar. I think what a lot of people do is they look at the apparently low cost of solar and then they look at the possibility of making that solar in the countries that don't make much of it because it's too expensive. The energy is cleaner, but the labor standards are higher, but you just can't justify building much solar factories there. And I think they combine those things in their head. And it's only recently now that solar development is getting so mature that countries or states or regions that have built an immense amount of it are running into extremely severe headwinds. So, for example, a recent study from the advisory bank Lazard came out. The Lazard Bank has produced for the last 15, 16 years what's considered the gold standard costing analysis of different energy sources. They do it by using a metric called levelized cost of electricity. L-C-O-E. What makes the cost levelized is that they are taking all the money, not the energy flows, so it's not life cycle energy, it's life cycle money. The money required up front to build the plant. Any costs of using the plant in production and keeping it in good shape with staff and repairs, then finally decommissioning. And then they take all of that spending, beginning, middle, and end, and they compress it to a number for today by using discount rates, so an assumption of, say, interest rates or expected return. You can define it different ways. And they take all these cash flows, add them up, divide it by the amount of energy you get out of the device, and they say, this is your cost. Well, what people are noting is that in a state like California, where midday sun saturates not only almost all the demand of the state's electricity needs, Especially when you throw in a bit of wind or a bit of hydro. But the solar is saturating local grids, local transmission lines. In order to add more solar, you basically have to add it with very expensive batteries. And even then, you're going to curtail or reduce the output at peak generation times when your solar panel is working best. So all of these things mean that a new, cheap, modern solar panel, likely from China, added to the grid in california reduces the carbon emissions in california almost not at all because it's overproducing at the same time as all the other solar panels that we've already been built in california spending 75 80 billion dollars
1: yeah i i i absolutely agree with that and the other hidden thing aside from the fossil fuel subsidy in order to manufacture the wind turbines and pour 26 truckloads of of cement for for one turbine pad you know it's 1.4 megawatt hours per kilogram of concrete that's a lot of energy and if you're pouring 26 trucks in order to put one wind turbine up you better be able to get a lot of energy from that thing before it gives way with the panels we have a very big problem coming. And that problem is they have to be replaced. They have to be replaced every 25 to 30 years. And so if you have acres and acres and acres and acres of them, you are going to have to figure out how to recycle the parts. So far, there's no clear guidance on that. They end up in landfill. You've got to make new You've got to zone refine the silicon, you've got to do this and that and the other. It usually requires a lot of energy. If you are actually not going to make them in China with cheap coal plants supplying the energy, you're going to have to make your new panels with your old panels. And the question is, let's suppose instead of being director, of the UCI nuclear reactor facility, I was an entrepreneur who decided the solar panels were the solution. So I'm going to manufacture solar panels and I'm gonna power my manufacturing facility with my own panels, because of course I don't wanna be using fossil fuels. So what I have to do because I don't have any panels and I don't have a factory, is I have to use fossil fuels to build the factory, to manufacture the first set of panels. And I'm free to put the panels on my own roof, out in the parking lot, out in the desert, whatever. But at the end of the day, I have to use those panels to power my factory because I'm not gonna use any more fossil fuels, period. All right. I'm going to have to have a lot of panels. I'm gonna have to have a battery. There isn't a single place that doesn't work 24 hours these days. Even the Oakley sunglasses factory out in Irvine is 24 hours. And if you ask them, why don't you have a reasonable work schedule? They say, we can't have two plants and pay twice as much property tax and all this stuff. We'd go out of business right away because it's very, very competitive. So you can see that if you're going to be making these panels, you're gonna be making them at night as well, not just in the daytime when the sun is shining. And if you do the analysis on that, you can actually replace all your panels every 25 years and you can make a few more. But the thing is, you're going around in a hell of a big circle on that, just on a treadmill producing panels to keep your own factory from going under. And you, you, it's, it's just not a very attractive solution. I would say back in the middle ages there where it was four to one, everybody was involved in farming because it's only four to one. So you don't have any free time or very few people do to learn the violin or to go for a run or to do many of the other things that people would like to do. And what I predict is that if you have square miles of solar panels, that you will in fact, be employing all kinds of people to fix busted wiring, replace panels, storm damage, on and on and on. And you certainly won't be able to have solar powered robots do it for you because then you're taking your own power. You're supposed to be supplying power to other things, not eating it up yourself. But what I suspect is that when you take into account all the maintenance and the upkeep and the replacement, that solar won't be attractive at all.
2: So. Uh, Dr. Shaka, in some ways, that was a stylized representation of this uh, Uroburos problem, the energy snake eating its tail problem, because somebody might push back and say, but uh, sir, we're not going to just have solar panels. We'll have some wind turbines. So those can go at night and the sun can go during the day. And in fact, I've seen a version of that argument on the grandest scale. So in Germany, I've seen energy experts say that on average, each year, The wind comes in the spring and the fall and the winter, and the sun comes in the summer, so therefore it slots right together on average. And in fact, it's worth mentioning the Germany situation as relatively few of their nuclear plants had to be turned off, and relatively little wind and solar had to be added before solar manufacturing was no longer viable in Germany. Partly it was the labor standards, partly it was a little bit of materials issue, but a lot of it just was. They could not compete against places with cheaper energy. Now, you might say, well, they didn't have to put so many subsidies on wind and solar or well, they kind of did, because Germany is not very good for wind or sun. Texas is pretty good for wind and sun. That's maybe a better situation. But what we're seeing in Germany and we'll come back to it later, I'm sure with the loss of the final nuclear plants, various industries are reading the riot act to their government saying, look. This is the end for us. You better give us unsustainable subsidies and price out all the other industries in the country. You better put all the electricity costs onto other parties or we're going to have to go. And instead, we're going to see German companies just move to continue moving to places like Canada or USA with cheap energy to do any of the manufacturing, especially that that's part of this energy loop. So I'll, I'll say that there's a... lot of scholarship out there and there's a lot of debate around these energy return on energy invested numbers some people say solar doesn't even provide back the energy that it takes to put into the panel other people say no that's outdated data the newest panels with the highest efficiency and best technology from the most modern solar factories again these might be the ones in china but still. They can give you a, if installed in a fairly sunny place, and if not decommissioned early, they can give you a 10 to 1 or 15 to 1 or 20 to 1. Numbers I've seen from wind turbines range based on the design, but fairly sophisticated energy modeling that I can more or less trust has ratios of, say, 10 to 1 up to 30 to 1 or so, and some some claim higher. So that's definitely gets us outside of the medieval zone. The trouble is that's only for the wind turbine or that solar panel assumed installed in a system where ideally there aren't too many other solar panels or wind turbines that would cut into the amount of energy that you can get at peak times because you're already producing from the same windstorm or the same solar day over a big area. So Mm. one last thing on this, it may sound like we've just showed up to character assassinate. Everybody's favorite energy sources, wind and solar. I want to assure your listeners, Claudia, that that is not our intention. It's just simply to put wind or solar away from the fantasy land version into the real world that people will use to criticize nuclear. It's okay to criticize nuclear. But if we're going to criticize nuclear on the time it takes to build the plants or how long they last or not, or the need to measure the carbon input into the nuclear fuel cycle and construction and decommissioning, if necessary, that we also have to use that, those same frameworks to look at solar and wind. And when you do that sort of comparison, when you do compare solar and wind on their performance characteristics, their lifetime, the record so far of decommissioning efforts, even the storage of spent fuel from nuclear plants when you put that all together and harmonize the numbers and studies you get fairly compelling evidence nuclear outstanding protector of the environment and of people and a provider of clean wealth for nations over long periods of time
1: i absolutely agree with that and And i
0: just uh, yes go ahead aj
1: Well, I just want to remark also that if you want to build batteries to store energy, or you want to pump water uphill, I mean, out here in California, you have to make an assumption that you're going to have some water to pump uphill. And you may not, because you're looking at global change now in rain patterns, and If it's hot, the water evaporates. You have to take that into account. You pump water uphill during the day and it evaporates and you you start losing. And batteries are very energy intensive to make. And anyone knows that you can't recharge them endlessly. You have to, at some point, replace the whole battery. Well, if you look at what you would need for Southern California, you'd need a battery one mile high and one mile, you know, it, it, a cubic mile to supply backup for one measly day where it's cloudy and not windy. I submit that that is a totally hopeless way to go. If, I'll if, mention, mention,
2: AJ, that the vast majority of grid storage built to date for electricity around the world has been built by and for nuclear power plant operators, the same utilities, the same companies or installed in the same areas. Why? Because the best use of energy storage is when you have an absolutely guaranteed constant supply of low cost energy over extremely long periods of time. It's a bitter irony for me when I study electricity that the business case for large storage systems on the grid has declined. As we've added wind and solar and reduced firm, reliable plants, it's very ironic because people say, oh, no, well, I'm not worried about wind droughts or solar uh, low solar seasons. There's going to be storage. What they don't understand is that storage does best economically when you have an absolute assurance that there's going to be surplus power every single night on the dot to pump up your power. Let it run down during the day and harvest a little bit of difference in the electricity price or save a little bit of money if you're still a utility that has control and responsibility for a whole area and all the power plants in it. Look, as we've added wind and solar to California, the business case for adding major new, say, pumped hydro, this is where you pump water up the hill, Mm. storage systems has actually declined which is not, it's counterintuitive. It's not what people expect. Now, I will say, if we are going to build a lot of batteries, people need to be ready for those batteries to have a best case scenario economically for those building them of being near the load, not being way out in the boondocks in nature at a solar plant or at a wind farm. And what that means is, if you're building batteries near a city, you have to be prepared for those batteries to be much more important in emergency demand periods than in emergency oversupply periods, which further means batteries placed in coastal California now to protect the grid, to protect people's lives, are going to draw a certain amount of their energy from higher usage of fossil fuel plants, especially in transmission constrained areas that have intentionally tore down their nuclear plants like Southern California like Irvine.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are engineer and energy strategy expert, Mark Nelson, and UCI chemistry professor, A.J. Shaka. We're talking about the mix of all sources of energy. And I just wanted to go back to two sorts of timeframes here is, what, Mark, is the fastest turnaround now in your European case studies for a nuclear power facility online. You were talking about in Europe, you're giving us different timeframes, but what's the shortest one now? And for both of you too is what is the most, the oldest kind of solar facility that is approaching a decommissioning of those panels?
2: Sure, so let me handle the nuclear question first. The European Union and various powerful member states within the European Union have had anti-nuclear positions for several decades now. What this means is, in addition to being generally bad at mega construction projects, European countries that have been interested in nuclear have faced needing to restart entire nuclear construction industries on their own. They face needing to fend off lawsuits from Russian oil-loving Austria that wants to sue every country that gets a nuclear plant. They just love doing that. And I'm not even certain they've learned their lesson after the invasion of Ukraine. So the record of recent nuclear plants in Europe, first of all, is very thin because very few countries have attempted to add them in recent history. And second, it's been a slow and arduous process where everyone from the lowest-rung guy on the job without even finishing high school all the way up to the top construction managers know that if they finish the nuclear plant... It may make the big bosses happy, but it will mean the end of all the jobs because there's no second or no third or fourth nuclear plant expected. So this has made a very slow going across Europe. So uh, the most extreme example is the 2004 start of a mega reactor in Finland that has finally come on and not a moment too soon. It's immediately supplying something like a quarter of the entire nation's electricity almost overnight when it turned on, but it took 19 years to get up to full power and 18 years to turn on. Absolutely unacceptable for a young man like me who wants to see a world using more nuclear. We've got to do better. Now, I was just in Slovakia, where slowly they've been adding small reactors to their grid since they've joined the EU. They've just got one on the grid last year. That was a a difficult, long construction project, but they did it mostly with their own technology, their own internal industry. And when that reactor came on, uh, and once it gets to full power, it's gonna be expected to provide a decent chunk of the entire nation's energy for the next, I don't know, 60, 80, 100 years, maybe longer. So while the record is not good, it's sort of like big train stations or big airports or big tunnels in that it's permanent infrastructure for giving life to the nation. It's just we need to be able to build faster than we have. So to answer your question with a number, I think the fastest we've seen in Europe recently is on on the order of about 10 years. We've got to do better, Claudia.
1: I, I fully agree with that and part of it in this country is there is also a very strong anti-nuclear lobby partly it's an economic thing partly it's fear of radiation what about the nuclear waste overblown stories about the aftermath of chernobyl in fact chernobyl is basically an eco-tourism paradise before this ukraine war because what happened is everybody left because they were afraid of the radiation and all the animals came back. And even though you can measure them with a Geiger counter and they register, the animals are perfectly healthy. And in fact, they're thriving. And without the lights on all night, there are owls back and other kinds of nocturnal creatures that we've basically exterminated as humans by keeping lights on all night everywhere, even though people ought to be asleep, for goodness sakes.
2: Now, it's not just accidental ecotourism. There's a lot of extreme tourism. I've seen YouTube videos where a gang of young men, drill-seeking, try to see who can get the most radiation and spend the most time. And, and I, I, So not to make light of it, but let's be, <laughs> let's be honest. When we talk about Chernobyl, this nuclear plant saw its best year of output three years after reactor four blew up. And Reactor 3, which shares multiple facilities with the exploded reactor in the worst nuclear accident ever, Reactor 3 didn't shut down until year 2000. And only then, Ukraine only shut it down when they had guaranteed money coming from other European nations, not just to close up that nuclear site, but also to turn on more nuclear reactors. So Ukraine is one of the most pro-nuclear countries in the world. So we have to ask, what do they know about nuclear disasters having hosted the Chernobyl plant that we don't yeah it's almost as if proximity to the reality of the disaster is barely any worse for health because you can evacuate and you can check radiation extremely easily with handheld devices which is just not the case with a lot of environmental toxins that's for sure but also that they feel comfortable with the risk versus the reward of relying on nuclear as opposed to natural gas much of which would have had to come just for price reasons, national wealth reasons, from Russia, a country where trust has broken down fairly severely and will probably never be restored.
1: Yeah. Well, regulation in the United States is one major reason why things are moving so slowly. In order to build a nuclear plant, let's say you want to build a a new kind of design that has advantages over the conventional designs, let's say you want to build a fast reactor or a molten salt reactor or many of these other Gen 4 designs. The problem is it requires so much money to get the thing licensed that a lot of the energy, the younger people who might have smaller companies can never afford to get the new design licensed. It it costs too much money. And so the venture capitalists would prefer to fund some software company that makes dirty pictures that disappear, and then you'll be a hot air billionaire very quickly. Or Fusion. Right. Or Fusion, which doesn't have the same bad name. But Fusion hasn't worked in any measurable way. And, I, you know, it's not that the people working on Fusion aren't very bright. They certainly are some of the brightest people anywhere. However, the problem is very hard. What I would say the history of UCI's nuclear reactor facility is when the campus was being built, founded in 1965, in 1966, when they were putting up what's now called Roland Hall, it was a one-line item, one nuclear reactor. It was approved by the Atomic Energy Commission without any comment and it was built, and we've never had any kind of problem with it. It's provided endless information, scientific information. Groups come and analyze meteors from outer space and all kinds of things, very interesting for the students. But, you know, now you could not build the facility that we have. It would cost a fortune to do so, and it would take forever. And- so AJ,
2: AJ, I hear you, and I, I almost thinking we're agreeing too much. We gotta, we gotta steel man the case for nuclear and the case against nuclear in a way. I think maybe it's even important to almost red team, blue team this because aren't people worried about the inherent links between nuclear war and mega death over Earth? You know, megatons and maps of fallout, and and there's a whole generation still in very important and influential positions today who grew up during a time of horrifying increases in the lethality size and quantity of nuclear weapons heck even those beautiful uh triga reactors like the one at uci that was a design from the gentleman most commonly credited with being the father of the hydrogen bomb edward teller he kind of whipped out a design for triga alongside with designs for the most powerful weapons humanity has ever seen so if i were to push you a little bit and say what about people who grew up and lived in that era of rapidly escalating existential risk for humanity linked to nuclear technology what would you say if i challenged you on that because i've heard it i've heard it when i lived in california for four and a half years i certainly heard this objection
1: Yeah, well, you could have that objection, but here's the thing. I don't see anybody picketing the intercontinental ballistic missiles. They could easily do that. They picketed the San Onofre power plant, which is not a weapon, and nothing there can be taken and used as a weapon either. But when you say, okay, why don't you just decommission all your atom bombs and all your nuclear bombs? The very same people will say, well, you know, I don't know about that, because if we didn't have any army, if California were its own country, let's say, and didn't have an army, it wouldn't take long before California would be a very attractive takeover target for China or some other country. Nevada. Right. So, you know, the thing is, I don't see the power plant has anything, any connection at all to weapons, any more than you know you can make a TNT out of chemicals, right? But that that doesn't mean or that... fusion bombs out of fusion power plant fuel, right? You can you can do that. All those things you can. If I can challenge you, I let me let me push
2: down this path because I think it gets to the absolute heart. Of the biggest objection that people have, who are actually scared of nuclear, I've I've met young people who say nuclear is too expensive. But you can you can sort of sit there and haggle about the economics, and half the time they'll be like, okay, I, I guess I see your point of view. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. And then the other time you get you dig a little and you realize this is one of the few young people you've met. That is genuinely scared of nuclear war so let's stay on this nuclear war thing for just one more moment because i think it's behind a lot of say german misapprehension about what happened at chernobyl or german misunderstanding about what a nuclear meltdown would be like at their type of reactors and i found a tremendous amount of angst in germany that is not at all physically explainable by how nuclear power plants operate and how they would have meltdowns even Fukushima Daiichi style, that German angst is so much bigger. And when I was over there in Germany and trying to get to the bottom of this, and I, I got even more information by going to a few museum exhibits on German culture at the German History Museum, where it's clear Germany was traumatized by starting and then losing a world war where they were the widely acknowledged evil party. And they all know it. They know that it happened. That then they were split into for uh, two generations and had the nuclear weapons of the world not just stationed there inviting nuclear targeting but nuclear targeting anyway because that was the hotline that was the split line expected to be the battlefronts in Mm. a a hot war that emerged from the Cold War. So they sat there as losers of World War Two the bad guys in that conflict not even allowed to have their own effective defense much less nuclear arsenal themselves the nuclear technology felt so foreign even though uranium was discovered in berlin that the first splitting of the atom was hypothesized and then observed in in germany like i mean they you could easily make a romantic german soul satisfying story of nuclear being a truly german technology and yet they ignore all that to pretend it isn't and that it was thrust upon them, not just the weapons, but also the reactors. Germans were some of the very best nuclear engineers in the world. The three reactors they just turned off were the most productive reactors in world history up to this point, point. and three of the only reactors designed for true immortality, which means there's a hatch designed into the reactor, built into the reactor dome, allowing the reactor vessel the biggest metal part the only part that hasn't been replaced in modern reactors to be lifted out and moved out the side of the building meaning you could if you needed to after 100 years or whatever put in a new heart to the reactor and keep it beating so the germans got the best at nuclear they they ran those plants on 300 personnel whereas in the u.s it would take 600 700 800 people the germans can do it with 300 so they were the best Why did they rip out their plant? And I think it's in the end, they fully understand the power of the atom, but because of their history, we're obsessed with the death-bringing properties of the weapons Mm -hmm. and not the life-bringing property of the energy. Of course, the irony is they're just surrounded by reactors, just ones not as good as the ones they just turned off. They're still surrounded by nuclear bombs, just... Uh, you know, not under their control. And they still have just as much nuclear waste today as they would have um, running their reactors continue. Like, uh, they're not any better off, which is why, to push this a little further, I think we're going to start to see a true turnaround in Germany. Not an opinion, that's already happened. Most Germans were against the turnoff already, but they had already voted into a a government that insisted on completing the phase out. But now that the reactors are off, and none of the tension of living in a nuclear world is going to be lifted off of the German soul. Only the advantages of nuclear are going away. Only the weakness of Germany being revealed by the loss of those plants. Now we have a window to save as many of those last six reactors that have been recently turned off as we can. I believe we have probably a year and a half to two years before the final one of those six would be damaged beyond repair. And that's the amount of time that we are going to convince the German people of their own agency, of their own power to do good in the world and at home for themselves by returning to the power of the
1: atom. I think also, you know, the work of Hermann Muller about genetic effects of radiation, he gave, most people don't know much about units of of radiation dose, but basically, there's a unit called the sievert. And if you get six to eight sieverts quickly, if you're a human being, you die. And that's what happens if an atom bomb goes off near you, and uh, you get flashed with a lot of gamma rays coming from that. But you know, the dose rate from nuclear waste, if it's properly handled, is very low. And if people don't realize how much radioactivity is in the ocean already. There's 3 billion curies of uranium in the ocean now. Now, if you look at how many, when Chernobyl went up, 60 million curies went up and nothing happened, right? So they threw away a ton of cheese, they sheared some sheep, they wrung their hands, but it was only the poor firefighters who came to the plant who didn't even know it was a nuclear plant who got beta emitters on their skin and didn't rinse off and got horrible beta burns they were fatalities in in that accident but if you if you look at the dispersion of 60 million curies the worst accident ever by far in the environment where there's 3 billion curies in in the ocean and there's 285 billion curies of potassium-40 in the ocean. And that's why there's 20% oxygen in the atmosphere now, because of all the radioactive decay of potassium in the ocean, producing oxygen from water. You produce hydrogen peroxide, and then it reacts and produces oxygen. So while the biologists make claims about RNA world and there was anaerobic life and and so on and so forth, you can easily figure the reason there's 1% argon in the atmosphere and no other noble gas is because argon is a decay product of potassium-40. And if you figure 1% argon in the atmosphere, a lot of decays happened, and that's where the 20% oxygen ended up coming from. So probably we wouldn't be alive on Earth without radioactivity. Because when the Earth is hot and everything's at equilibrium, you have CO2 and you have uh, nothing else. But if you have a trillion watts of power just from radioactive decay, producing all kinds of unstable molecules, producing oxygen, not just having everything be water, and all this other stuff, then you have the, you know, it's really like rolling the dice. You, you've got all these possibilities for unstable molecules, and then a few of them get together, make a cell membrane, and that, the rest is history. But- I will mention that Germans definitely draw a line between
2: natural and artificial radiation. Germans don't even mind artificial radiation that doesn't have any obvious connection to nuclear power plants that they know of. For example, nuclear medicine. Um, Germans love going to spa towns with natural hot springs with unusually high concentrations of radiation because of radioactive substances leached up from rocks that are doing the heating of the hot water. So Germans are not sitting there. and, and, And of course, there's coal plants surrounding their major cities, providing both backup power and baseload power, especially now that they've turned off nuclear. And then Germans aren't super anxious about the radioactivity from the coal ash. This definitely comes back to a mental link, not Mm. radiation itself, not the units, not the dosages, none of that. None of that. No, 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 no. It's about that link to powerlessness and the constant threat of nuclear weapons. So it's not that I'm disagreeing. Everything you everything you said sounded correct, AJ. I mean, it's your field a little bit more than mine, but. It's the story around nuclear, not even the radiation itself. And I think we've mentioned disinformation campaign a few times. I believe disinformation campaigns that are successful, especially the ones that are cost efficient, require a receptive cultural vessel to pour into. They require people to already be motivated to believe the missing context or believe the lie or believe the false fact and stuff like that. And I think Germans were ready to believe complete and utter bullshit about radiation and about nuclear energy because it fit in with their open, unaddressed cultural wounds from the 20th century and how they lost the war that ended in Japan with nuclear weapons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they've also lost talent. We at UCI recruited a young German assistant professor now, Sarah finkeldai She has no future in Germany, but she's got a bright future here and she's on fire and she's working on fault tolerant nuclear fuel for the future, safer reactors, and she's got students and training them. And so you have to realize that let's say you do get into a war. Let's say it's a conventional war. Let's say uh, you have to manufacture a ton of drones or a ton of jets or a ton of this or that. Who wins, the guy with the windmills or the guy with the nuclear plant that can go full tilt? I'm not saying that that's the only thing one ought to consider, but you do have to keep in mind that what goes round comes round. And occasionally you may need power, not energy, power. Power is energy plus get it done now. And in a time of crisis, you need power. Nobody talks about political energy doesn't have any meaning. It's political power. I want to get something done. Well, if you have a building flood because you have Hurricane Sandy or this or that, the time you leave the water standing there while you wait for the sun to come up or something else to happen is gonna be time you lose and there could be uh you know, I'm not predicting World War three. But I will say that my dad, before he died, was distraught that uh, Putin would invade Ukraine. He told me he said, "Son, I fought in World War II. It was awful, and I see they haven't learned a thing. And uh, maybe, maybe we haven't. I, I, you know, I was shocked as well. I think, like the rest of the world, was in a certain way, by that development.
2: No, I." I still we we've got supply. to answer Go some we've got to answer some questions about nuclear waste also back in california i got lots of questions about nuclear waste so let me poke you a little bit aj and say if somebody came to you and said i can't get behind nuclear waste not because of, say the accidents you you convinced me on chernobyl it continued to operate clearly wasn't as bad it's a nature park today okay maybe it's not a forever disaster and maybe they're okay even with the argument about the constant electricity i found that Everyone from the man on the street up to the governor of California evolved a little in the blackouts of 2020. And they thought differently about nuclear, which is one of the reasons we've saved Diablo Canyon, the final operating nuclear plant in the state, which is getting its licenses renewed and it's going to keep operating. So if I were going to push you and say that leaves one major common unanswered objection from this episode together,
1: it's the nuclear waste. What do you have to say about that, sir? I have to say the following. We do tours of the UCI nuclear reactor facility a lot and educational tours, outreach, high school students, all kinds of things. And because we don't produce power, you can look down through this absolutely pure water that's 25 feet deep and you can see the Cherenkov glow from the core. Now, can you describe that, that? It's beautiful cyan color that comes out. You don't see this kind of cyan color in nature very often. Um, so, like it, a blue cool. glow, like Doctor yeah. Manhattan. Blue. From, from Blue from, glow. Yeah, from, uh, yeah, okay. yeah. So it's beautiful, but that we wear real time dosimeters. We give each visitor Uh, a real-time reading dosimeter it says exactly how much radiation they've been exposed to they all read zero after the tour and that's despite the fact that you're looking down at a very active live core this is not just residual waste that has radioactivity this so is it's even long.
2: spicier than spent nuclear fuel. They're looking down on something with more radiation coming out of it than much spent more. nuclear fuel when
1: it's loaded into
2: storage at a nuclear much,
1: plant. Much, much, much more. And th- it reads zero. You know why? Because 25 feet of water is as good as infinity when it comes to radiation. And so is 25 feet of sand or anything else. So the idea that you have to drill down a kilometer and put stuff down there is just totally wrong. You don't have to do that at all. In fact, I, I think I'm with you there, AJ. I think it's don't. one
2: of the few areas where I'm in almost perfect agreement with anti-nuclear people.
0: I thank you, gentlemen. I so appreciate all of the time you've given us today. The extended portion of this interview will be posted on myaskaleader.com. We're recording this today on May 13th. Thank you both for your time today. Sure enough. My guests were Mark Nelson, nuclear power energy strategy expert and managing director of Radiant Energy Group, and A.J. Shaka, UCI chemistry professor and director of the UCI nuclear reactor facility. next week. The uh, full hour is going to be Justin Levitt, the demographer, shepherding the city of Irvine through the process now underway of mapping the city council districts. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, next week begins the fun drive next Monday. And I hope you all be generous with us. Talk to you next week.